Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 33 Voices. It is wonderful to welcome someone who I have admired for a long, long time. Marcus Buckingham has been, certainly for me, one of the foremost management thinkers for the past several decades. He is the, I guess it's the co-pioneer of with Don Clifton of Gallup of the Strength Finder assessment, who I was just sharing with Marcus. I think I probably spent more money on that than any other tool that I've ever used and everything that comes with the Strength Finder. But in addition, he is a creator of his own assessment, the standout assessment, the author of 10 books. And I can go on, Marcus, but it's great to be with you, man. Great to see you too. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. Why was it important for you to use the word love front and center here? Well, it's one of those words that needs rehabilitating. When I first wrote First Break All the Rules, the word that needed rehabilitating was manager. There was that whole idea of, if you, you know, managers do things right, but leaders do the right things. And managers were this sort of second class citizen. And First book called The Rules was about, no, 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 the world's best managers do something absolutely extraordinary. So now the word love, we, we know that when you're in love with someone, there's this biochemical cocktail in your brain of, of, of dopamine and uh, norepinephrine and vasopressin and oxytocin, some sort of combination in your brain, which- Something. Yeah. Which makes you, when we see it in you, we know it's sort of dysregulating your neocortex and you're, you're more open, you're more resilient, you're more creative. It's why very creative people need a muse. It's, it opens you up to new connections and possibilities. And what's interesting, of course, is when you're doing something that you love, you, we actually find the exact same chemical cocktail in your brain. When you vanish into what you're doing, when you do some activity, whatever the heck it happens to be, that you really love, it's that same exact same cocktail with this combination of or an addition of anandamide, which is, which is, we think anyway, feelings of wonder and awe. And, and what that chemical cocktail does is the same thing it does when you're in love. It opens you up to learning, to, to creativity, to connections that you wouldn't see otherwise. You're more generous. You remember details better. You have a more high-level cognitive function. And we all know what that feels like when we get into doing something that is so in our zone or in our element or whatever whatever cliche you want to use, but that's, that's love. So loveless excellence is oxymoronic. There's no such thing as loveless excellence, whether you're cleaning a hotel room or writing a piece of code or persuading a customer or making a, an investment decision. Anything done excellently has got love in it, lots of love in it. So I, I put that in there because biochemically and biologically, it's a reality. And if you're the CEO of a company and you say, look, I want my people to be creative, innovative, collaborative, generous, resilient, but you're uncomfortable with the word love, then you'll never get any of those things. You won't. It'll all just be sort of superficial stuff that you write on a wall. If you really want work to be extraordinary, if you want people to be able to be nourished by their work and then deliver excellent work, then you got to talk about love. And if you don't, you're just skating over the surface. Well, you more than anybody know how much lack of love is in work, or you can call it disengagement, you can call it whatever it is that you want to call it. Oh. Knowing what you know, what is causing that? 
what is causing that from a leadership perspective? What is causing that from even a management perspective? Well, one of the things that we see about humans that is the most obvious to us in life and that we forget about almost entirely at work and at school, but one of the most obvious things that we see about humans is variation, range. We, we see how different people, and I don't mean different in terms of race or gender or age or nationality or religion or sexual orientation. I just mean different from your brother or your sister in the same house as you. And we now know over the last 25 years, we know what causes that. We know by the time you're 20 years old, you've got 100 trillion synaptic connections in your brain in a network that will never be repeated ever again. When you die, that's gone forever. The uniqueness of your network is so filigreed and so specific. It leads you to love some things. It leads you to hate other things. It leads you to pay attention to some things. It leads you to forget other things. It, it creates this completely idiosyncratic way of interacting with the world that's just you. And as a function, both of your clash of your chromosomes and then some effects of the way in which your environment occurs. But basically, although you can retain a lot of your plasticity of your brain over the course of your life, you tend to not actually rewire your brain to become somebody else. Actually, we see most learning and synaptic growth occurs where you have the most pre-existing synaptic growth. So actually your network, your pattern simply becomes more and more and more defined mm -hmm. over the course of your life. Well, that's variation. That means you're a category of one. When you go to work, basically what happens at work and no one says it ever like this. No one would dream of saying it like this. But when you look at all of the human management systems, this is what they're saying. We need you to lose all of that idiosyncrasy. We need you to grind it down. If you're a nurse, I've got 300 nurses. You're all doing the same job. The uniqueness of how you pay attention to patients or the uniqueness of the words that you use or the uniqueness of your drive or motivation, all of that to us at this particular hospital are irrelevant to the job we're paying you to do. Actually, they're not irrelevant. They're obstructions to the job I'm getting you to do. So whether you work in a factory, a warehouse, a bank, a hospital, the CEO is almost specifically saying, we need uniformity of outcome. I don't, I don't care about that incredible variation and uniqueness. In fact, we're going to put in place systems like cascaded goals from above or competency models or rating systems that rate you against those models or 360 tools that will rate you from other people's perspective against those models of what you're supposed to be like. Or if you work in the federal government, we'll actually create laws, actual laws that say you cannot get promoted to this next job unless you manifest this list of predefined uniform competencies. And so the whole challenge of work often is trying to grind your unique loves out of you. And that's done for all sorts of good reasons. I mean, I was the CEO. I built a company from zero to, you know, 150 people. And suddenly you've got 150 people that aren't you. <laughs> and, and you're trying to get them to get organized and focused. And you know what it's like. And their uniqueness, if you're not really careful, becomes an impediment to you getting what done what you want to get done. Now, we all know that actually that's not that people's uniqueness shouldn't be an impediment to that. That In fact, humans work in teams when they work well, and the teams make homes for uniqueness. That's what teams were built for. A few different people wired in different ways coming together to do together what they couldn't do by themselves. That's what work should be like. But we haven't built work like that. We've built work to basically say your success will depend upon how closely you match the model 
that we happen to have defined in advance, independent of you. So when people go to work, there's no love there because we're trying to not see you. We're trying to hide you. And I don't mean to be cynical, but if you look at all of the you know, human resources systems we live within, they're all trying to create conformity of method based upon whatever job you're in. And when that's your basic design intent, there's no love in that anywhere. And that, I think, is a fun, as a function of this pandemic, that's why we've got engagement levels that uh, right now 14%, 15% of people fully engaged at work right now, which is down three percentage points from pre-pandemic, which it wasn't very high before the pandemic. No, it's abysmal it, then too. Yeah, it's gone down. But that's the nut we haven't cracked. We think that work is a place in which we've got to try to inhibit your unique clubs. We're actually not very interested in them at all. And we couch it in very positive sounding words like growth mindset, which is positive because the opposite sounds like fixed mindset. But when you peel the onion of growth mindset, it's a bit of a false dichotomy because so everyone knows you're going to grow in some way. The question would always be, where are you going to grow the most? And this whole notion of love and finding love in what you do begins with saying, well, hey, your unique weird pattern of loves and loads is shared by precisely no one. And so when we think about a growth mindset for you, really, it's how can you grow into a more contributive, more responsible version of you? That's really interesting. But when we actually look at what we do at work, we don't say that to people at all. I mean, you do, (laughs) but most CEOs, most workplaces, impatient with idiosyncrasy and uniqueness. Well, I, I have lived it. I've lived, I lived it when I was in, in that world for 22 years. And it was every day it was going against gravity. It had to be conformity, even to how we said what we said. Mm. But the thing that, that I think I'm interested in getting your thoughts on the ironic thing that I've always found the leaders that are running these teams, the leaders that are running these companies are in the same exact predicament as their people. If they were to leverage their own uniqueness, not only would their organizations run better, but their life would run better. What levers have you seen, Marcus, that it takes for a leader to recognize that and to, if nothing else, to at least turn the knob a little bit on that switch? Well, in the end, you know, this book's called Love and Work. So you pay attention. I mean, the first thing you bump into is, of course, I'm different from my brother. I'm different from my sister. No one really seems to help me with that. I mean, George Clooney has an aunt called Rosemary Clooney. And the story that he tells is that he became an actor because my aunt was Rosemary Clooney. Yeah, okay, George, but you also have a sister. Her name's Ada. She has an aunt called Rosemary Clooney. Ada is not an actor. Ada's an accountant specializing in payroll. Every one of us has got a story like that where our brother or a sister or a cousin are totally different from us. And yet no one seems to give us no one seems to give us a language or a framework or anything to engage with that uniqueness. I mean, Strength Finder, we tried to do it from a strength lens. But if you're just looking at what do you love? What do you pay attention to? When does time fly by? What's your love language? No one does any of that with us, really. And, and the point of doing it, of course, isn't for narcissism or self-involvement's sake. The point is that your love needs to flow and it needs to flow into contribution. So if you're drawn to something, 
If you find you vanish into doing something, we find that you are more productive, your, cogn your cognition works better, your memory works better, your detail works better, your creativity works better. And so ideally in the most successful people, you see this lovely ongoing infinite loop of love leading to work, work giving more detail to love, love then leading to more contribution in work. It's a beautiful thing. So what, what wakes leaders up to that infinite loop, the infinite loop possibility of love for work, work for love, love for work, is when they need people to get work done. The new leader is the one who seems to believe that they've got into position because they wanted more control. And then they realize they have less control. And then they realize that they've got to somehow set up conditions in which people are somehow choosing to give of their best, choosing to contribute of their best, choosing find, to find ways to learn and grow. And the leader begins to go, even if it's not for moral reasons, even if it's just for pragmatic reasons, the biggest lever I've seen is people going, you know what? I've only got a certain amount of time to invest in my people. If I keep trying to force everyone on my team, independent of who they are, to deliver contributions in a way that I am mandating, that is an incredibly inefficient use of my time. And so if I want the outcomes that I want, which might be happy customers or more sales or better investments or better software or whatever it is, I better define that outcome really clearly, talk about what it is. And then I got I to gotta try and help people find their love-fueled or strength-based or individualized path to that outcome. So it becomes almost a pragmatic lever. If I'm not going to waste a ton of my time pushing noodles up hills, then I better start figuring out how to actually pull these noodles down a hill. Now, not every leader gets there, as, as you know. Uh, uh, in your advisor capacity, I'm sure you've seen some people who are like, I still don't really understand what the heck you're talking about because mm -hmm. other people's minds are a mystery to them, let alone other people's loves. But, but for many leaders, that's the lever that moves first almost. It's, I've got to get these outcomes I'm sick of trying to get people to conform to a standard of, you know, mandated way of getting it done. I got I to gotta find another way to do this. I think the only other one, by the way, is teams. I was super interested to see that two years ago, this local anthropologist on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia climbed this little ladder, stone ladder, went into a cave. I think, I think they found a handprint that was about 27, 28,000 years old in, in a cave nearby. And they were looking for more handprints to see if they could find anything that was similar. And he came across a 15-foot mural that when they later measured, did radio, I'm not exactly sure how they measured the age of it, radiocarbon dating. Anyway, there's some super sophisticated way of measuring the age of the painting. It's 46,000 years old. So it's the oldest human art we've ever found. And it's a picture of a group of people with spears or sticks and ropes. And then there's very clearly painted pictures of local animals and a Noah, a deer. And you can see it's like a hunting scene. These, these people are trying to capture or kill the animals. But what's weird about it was that each one of these humans who are clearly meant to be humans have been given some animal characteristics so one of them has a tail. Another one has the face of like a lion. Another one has a, like a giraffe, not a giraffe, a trunk, like, a, like an elephant. elephant. 
And some anthropologists think that because these, and they call those people therianthropes, by the way, I'm not even sure what that means, but a half animal, half person depiction is called a therianthrope. And uh, some think that this is the beginning of a sign that we're making religion because these things, these, these creatures clearly are, are functions of our imagination. But I think there could be a more, a way more pragmatic explanation that the person who drew it was sitting in a cave, looking across the fire to the people sitting around the fireplace and went, wait a minute, you're really strong. You're wily like a crocodile. You're super brave. You sort of know where the animals go. You can actually mimic animals. You, And somehow that person went, what happens if we made a new technology, a brand new technology called a team? And we used all of your uniqueness and we, and we got a team together so that we could actually do together what we couldn't do alone. And everyone else went, all right, well, well, try that and we'll see whether or not we can capture and kill more animals. And it's just kind of beautiful and astonishing that the earliest human thing we've ever seen us represent is a team, how much we need one another and how much our differences between one another are flipping useful and not to be ignored. So while one lever to your question might be just the pragmatics of how do I get people to get stuff done? The other lever is a lever where the team, where the CEO or the, or the leader realizes that what his or her job really is, is to create super high-performing teams. Mm -hmm. And if you really get into the heart of teams, it's not about there's no I in team. That's almost a complete misunderstanding of the point of a team. When you really get into teams, what you're really going is, hey, how can I pull a bunch of really different people together so that they can rely on one another, collaborate with one another, and be so much more than the sum of their, the sum of their uniquenesses. That's the biggest leap that leaders make is when they realize they're actually in the business of building more teams like their best teams. Hmm. Arsenal's got something to figure out there. It's been a couple of decades, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> it's funny. It's like I was... Arsenal is a, football, is a soccer team, right? Yeah. So the, the new coach or the recently new Arteta, he's kind of getting it together. I'm quite interested in how this season is going to finish up because we three games into the season, we were the bottom of the table. We were lost. We were they dead like lost. fourth now, right? Third or fourth? Fourth, fourth with three games in hand, mm -hmm. I'll tell you. And it's the youngest team in the EPL, in the English Premier League, youngest. So I'm not suggesting he's any Pep Guardiola. I, I, I don't know that he's got enough quite yet of a system, but he does seem to know that he's how to use some of his talent. I mean, not to get too much into soccer, but, but he's got Partey playing really well. Granite Shaka, who's an interesting kind of character, he's playing well in the midfield. And then they've got a couple of young kids up front. Saka is amazing. And Odegaard, they've got, they've got some... They're fun to watch. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. When they're playing well. They're when fun they're to watch. Well. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. Well, I, and I'm super happy for you. I know what it's like to cheer for a team that hasn't done a damn thing in two decades. When I look at this book and, and I've devoured all of your stuff and just with incredible admiration and respect, this one seems to be very personal to you. This one seems to just you just kind of put yourself out there in a little bit of a different capacity. I want to ask you about how you built your company in a minute, but what was the experience as you were writing this and as you were committing to being vulnerable, what was it like putting that on paper for you personally? 
Well, yeah, as I say in the book, I mean, this is a very personal book for me. I've written nine previous books, most of them based on data because I'm I'm a psychometrician by training. I, I trained in you know the feet of Don Clifton, who you know, and the rigor with which he approached measuring human talent and human strengths was second to none. He was the grandfather of positive psychology. Marty Seligman, Egg, Dina, Mike Chekchamahai, they all came to Don Clifton's office and sat at his feet. I mean, Don was a genius. And I, whether I inherited or whether I got inculcated into knowing that we shouldn't start very many sentences with the words, I think, because no one really cares what I think. Mm-hmm. We should start sentences with, what do we know about humans? So I was comfortable with that, frankly, in most of my previous books. And, and yet for this one, you know, a few things happened while I was sitting to write this book. One of them is my dad died and you realize life is super bloody short. Now he, you know, he had a good life, but when your dad dies, you're now it's you, you know, there's no one above you now. And it's, there's that I got divorced, which I'm, I, I think was the right decision for me, but I'll never be proud of. And that's just, boy, that shakes you to your core. Somehow my kids, you know, got involved in some, national scandal around education that was just like what you just suddenly your entire private life is reached into and you start thinking about what kind of pressures we're putting on kids and all of it is part of a story. And I had to make a decision in the end about whether or not I was going to tell my some parts of my story, my own story, how much of me was I going to share as well as the data that we have about human resilience or human strengths or human engagement. And I think I just came to a conclusion that if I die, never having, never having been, to use a Brene Brownism, never having been vulnerable enough to go, hey, listen, life's a scavenger hunt, man. We're all making this up as we go along. I'm simply going to try to help you figure out how you might be able to make it up as you go along in a way that is love fueled as opposed to love rejecting. And love is an interesting word. And it's a word, as I said, you know, it needs rehabilitating. It needs us understanding what it really means. If we're not careful, it becomes a cliche, like do what you love and you never have to work it there in your life again. And, For sure. and yet there's no data on that. So I thought the juxtaposition of hard data about psychometrics Combined with, you know, when I first met you, I, you know, what am I? I'm 57 now, and I've been, I've done the roller coaster thing. I've had some really great things, and I've had some real struggles, and I've had some tragedies, and I've had some successes. And I was hoping that that some of that personal story makes somebody who's reading the book begin to be able to step more consciously and courageously into their own story, and that we stop. You know, we strip back that little veneer of perfection and we go, you know what? No, it's always going to be a scavenger hunt. But let's just figure out how to make sure that the scavenging that you're doing is scavenging for the right sort of nourishing stuff and that you actually do have all the answers no matter what comes your way. And I, I, I felt pretty good in the end about sharing some of that some of those moments, some of those challenges and the response to the challenges, because in the end, they are, they are a true reflection of the kind of questions I was asking myself. Again, not that my story is your story. Uh, my story as a white guy, middle-aged white guy in the first world nation is, is, is shock full of privilege 
And luck, as I said at the beginning of the book, you can all you can do is report on the only thing that you know, and the only thing that you really know is your own experience. So I'll share some of those experiences, and and people hopefully can get a sense for themselves of what their experiences are like and what their stories like. Well, you did it beautifully. If you were to start your company today, if you were to start a new company today, knowing everything that you know, how would you approach it where it, it, is be, it becomes a company of love? Well, I think the, the place that I began, which is not a bad place to begin, is what does the customer love? And of course, no matter how much money you have, no matter how well capitalized you are as a company, if you don't have any customers, you don't have any company. So I think that part of it, I would stay the same with. You start your company with a customer and then you try to respond to what that customer may want. I think what I would do differently is that I would dig ever more deeply into what they truly, truly love, what the customer truly, truly loves, what, what do they what do they really, really, really want from you? And what would so that, that look like, Marcus? Because a lot of people won't even go to that second, third, or fourth layer like you do. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> the easiest thing about starting a company is that you, you get a customer who writes you a check. And then you think, how can I make sure I deliver against what their expectation is? Well, I say it's easy. It, th that's the challenge. How do you make sure that whatever it is that they're paying you for, that you actually deliver on? Mm -hmm. What I think I would do differently moving forward is I would probably stay focused on one or two customers to begin with much more deeply. I would go deeper with them. I would work alongside them. I would see how they really want to see change happening. I wouldn't try to scale as quickly as I tried to scale, because if you don't really understand how you're going to change, one of my first companies that I worked with was, was Hilton. And it's a huge company. So your little mind as an entrepreneur goes, oh, well, we've got, we got Hampton Inn over here, and then we've got the Hilton brand over here, and then we've got Homewood Suites. Over there. Oh, let's, gosh, if we just really do well over here, we've got all these other brands we can help. And then what you miss is going, wait a minute, what are you actually trying to do? do you, are you really trying to change materially what it's like to go work at this place of work called Hilton? What would you do differently at every level, really? from onboarding to team joining to performance management to, to team creation to manager trip, you, you do the whole thing and you'd go really deep in it. And then you'd, you'd linger there for a long time because out of that would come a really deep understanding of what kind of services you might be best positioned to provide. And then you'd go searching for people who really loved, really loved doing, doing those things. Those, those things are all these different levels. And you'd figure out you weren't trying to boil the ocean, boil the ocean, but you'd go, you'd go deeper through every single bit of what you, would, what you were really trying to change for the people who worked in that company. And I didn't do that my, because the very next day after I got my Hilton check, Accenture came. And then I had Accenture, which is 500,000 people. And then you're going, all right, you, you start trying to just meet the flood of interest that's hitting you, which I think we did quite well. And I think we, we built some cool technology and then we did it again and then we did it again. 
but I don't think I went, did I really change Accenture? Did I really change the way that every single one of those 500 people experiences their work? No, I don't think I did. I don't think I looked at recruiting all the way through to retiring at Accenture in a way that was loving. I didn't really take that responsibility as focusedly and as seriously as I might have done. I think I just tried to figure out how on earth do I keep building a business when I've got these very big companies and I'm so little, how do I get people to support that? And it became, I think, a little bit more of a sort of business survival mode, not in the sense of trying to find a customer, having too many customers mm-hmm. and just trying to keep them, <laughs> just trying to keep them so that they weren't unhappy what you were doing. But if I was going to do it again, I would go, wait a minute. Like, let's just say we were going to start a business. And let's say that the business that we were going to try to start, let's just say, was how do we help 14 to 21-year-olds? Why do we end up drugging up our 14 to 21-year-olds? They're fine, 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 fine until they're not. We take them to the psychiatrist. They get the Adderall. They get the Xanax. They get the Adderall. They get the Xanax because now they're sick. And we've made them that way. If you were going to start a business that was like, wait a minute, we've got to change. That's changeable. Then the size of the ecosystem that you should be trying to change, the fact that it involves parents and curriculum and schools and workplaces and government funding and other sorts, I wouldn't be as afraid of it now as I, as I was when I first started my company. I was afraid of the size of the mission. And now I would go, well, now I will go, no, I'm going flo- to follow that love, if you like, the love of what I'm doing, both the purpose and the day-to-day activities of what I'm doing all the way through, and I don't care how complicated the ecosystem is, because focus initially is what will lead to effective scaling at some point. But if you scale too quick, then you've really just not given proper due to that which got you out of bed to find the first client. You've, you haven't followed your questions all the way through to where they should be finally addressing really every part of that which you're trying to do. Well, no one masters questions like you. The framing of every word and certainly in your assessments and in the questions, it's art, right? I'm sure there's science to it as well. But talking about recruiting, how do you handle recruiting? If I'm coming to work for you or with you or as a partner, what do you look for that there is a good probability that we're going to have enough of an alignment that maybe we can build something together or work together in some capacity? I mean, I know we can have an entire dialogue on this thing, but you just triggered it when you said recruiting to retirement. I've never heard anybody say it that way. Well, the recruiting is a whole bag of Mm -hmm. worms, isn't it? It is the first place at work anyway, where love is deliberately drained from your life in terms of the way that we currently do it. Sure. Because we reject nine out of the 10 people who apply. These nine people are beautiful people. They're trying their level best to show us all that they are. We're sitting back there, and this is before labor markets got as tight as they are now, but so maybe the dynamics would be different now, but 
we're looking at the 10 and we're looking, 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 and then for whatever reason, we choose one. The other nine, we, we don't talk to them again. They're done. They're discarded. The lesson you get very early in life is if you're hearing nothing, you didn't make it. And in fact, we used to say that explicitly in the recruiting stuff that we would do. We would, you know, if you never, if you didn't, don't hear from us in two weeks, we've moved on. Okay. You know, Joseph Stiglitz, his whole stakeholder capitalism basically says there's four stakeholders. There's the employees, there's the customers, there's the investors, and there's the community. And that's interesting. Okay. But really, when you push on it, there aren't four, there aren't four constituencies. There's one. The people are the point. The people are the point. If you serve the people well, then, then through that integrating lens of those people that work with you and for you, you will serve everyone else. But the people are the point. Now, if the people are the point, recruiting isn't, we talk to the one that we selected and those other nine are just gone and discarded. Uh-uh-uh. Those, all those nine are important to us. So first of all, we would find some way to ensure that when you talk to us, when you're trying to re- kind of join us, every, every one of you is meaningful. Every one of you is worthy. Not just because you might be a brand ambassador to us when you're talking to friends and family in the community and say, you know, I didn't get the job, but oh my word. They paid attention to me. They listened to me. So the the thing that we've got to move to in terms of recruiting is that we've got to to do it lovingly, which means simply seeingly. If you've got a human that's applying to go work there, you figure it doesn't matter whether you bring them on board or not. They're a whole human. Find the right ways to ensure that that human feels seen. At the moment we're living in a society, as you know, there's a lot of different places where a lot of people are unseen by design. Some of them we talked about in terms of work, where we have a lot of human capital management systems that are deliberately designed to alienate you from you. Like, come on. So recruiting would be the first place where you'd go, you know what? Everyone applying is worthy. Then, of course, pragmatically, you would start ensuring that your interviewing process was all open-ended questions. So you've got open-ended questions. You talk for 10% of the time. The candidate talks for 90 so that the person can be heard, how you craft those questions, what you're listening for, that will vary role by role by role by role. Personally, I always am asking people, and Don Clifton was the, the teacher of this, yes, you can say what's your previous work experience been, or yes, you can say what, what's your previous educational experience been, but your very next question in every job interview, your very next question after you've established your first little context setting is, what did you love about it the most? That's the, ne- that's the first thing you saw. What did you love about it the most? And then if you're a good interviewer, you just keep going down the avenue of love. Why did you love that? What was it about that that you really loved the most? Did you discover that or did somebody else discover that? Has, have you, has it always been the way with you? Can you give me a few examples of where you actually played that love out? And actually, when you, oh my word, you just go as an, as an interviewer, you just go down that avenue of discovery. Does it matter when you're doing that? Does it matter who you're doing that thing that you love with? Does it matter why is the purpose? It's, it's an astonishingly, even the most shy and reticent person becomes vivid and animated when you tap the vein of something that they love. The first assistant I had at, at my company when I was first starting, and he's now now he's still still with us actually. He's even the post acquisition from ADP, and he runs all the product. But he is a sort of fresh faced guy who came out of UCLA and his grades were fine. I think he was an English major, but 
we, I got him talking about youth camps. Tell me about your educational experience at UCLA and what you love the most about it. I just, and this kid's 20. It's like, I just love being the person that helps youth come to these camps when they're 14 and 15 years old and, and making sure they have fantastic experiences. I could so easily have gone, okay, now, so tell me, uh, what do you want to do in the next? But we didn't. We just, we just kept diving down deeper and mm. deeper and deeper into what is it about that? When did you discover that? Was your brother and sister like that? Did your mom and dad make you do that? When have you done it in a way that really surprised you? Was there anything about it that you found yourself paying attention to that no one else was paying attention to? What was that? And it's like, I won't say his name, but it's it, suddenly the whole human is there in front of you. Showed up, yeah. And then you can, frankly, you can almost decide whatever job you want to put them in because there's no set profile for a job, really. I mean, obviously, you can help, you, you can find some things to do pre employment selection instrument wise. You can, you can sort of get better at just random, but, but there's a lot of different ways to excel at a job, particularly in a startup. And so if you see the whole human, which I did with him, you go, oh, well, you know what? You're going to start off the job. I wasn't even thinking of this for you, but you're going to start off as my assistant because I want to stay really close to you. <laughs> As I see some of these loves that you were talking about play out. And then whenever we were thinking about the next move for him, you just, all you had to do is go back to your notes where he was like a page of notes on this guy talking about what he loves. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, you could go do product. Because what you'll bring to product is this, oh no, no, you could lead the product team because when, and so as with all things, deep curiosity about what somebody loves doesn't narrow them it becomes the integrating point for all the other innovative discoveries and choices and new jobs that they might take. So that's how there's so much more we could talk about in terms of recruiting, but that you see the whole person, even those that don't get selected and the people who you're thinking might be the final candidates, you keep going down the lane of love and they will reveal themselves to you. So you're clear in the book on why you made the transition from Gallup to your own coaching company and obviously now to ADP. We'll let mm. people read that. As you start to think about going from you being solo to having 150 people prior to acquisition, when you think about people development, how have you approached people development? Because you've obviously done a hell of a job in putting people in roles, not only that, that they can thrive in, but that they can succeed. How do you approach people management? Well, the first is what I've just said, which is you, are, you take people's love seriously, which is an obvious thing to say from someone who's written a book called Love and Work. But as I do say in the book, the first time it really strikes you that how loveless the world is, is when, for me, sitting there talking to my daughter and realizing that First of all, when she says, what's the difference between a rhombus and a parallelogram? I can't remember what it is. Yes, <laughs> neither can I. <laughs> right. But second, you realize somebody's taken geometry. Someone has taken geometry so seriously that my daughter's had 10 years of it. 10 years of geometry. Wow. That's somebody taking a subject seriously. All the things, though, about what she loves. What are the sources of love for her? What are the particular activities or moments or situations or contexts where she's elevated, even a little bit, but frequently? What are those things where she's at her best? People turn to her for. She notices things that others don't. She's singled out. What all of that that really is the mystery of her, the 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 five thousand Milky Ways of of connections in her brain. She gets nothing on that. 
like nothing at all on that. And then we hire her, you know, in the, in the world of work and she's hopelessly inarticulate about describing her loves and yet her loves and her contribution, her loves and her contribution are intimately linked and we're hiring her for her contribution. So the first thing that I've done all the way through is, is do exactly what I just described with the other chap I was talking about. You start off with what did you love? And then you just keep pushing. Does it matter about this? Does it matter about that? Does it matter when? Does it matter who? And you listen, you pin your ears back and you listen. As, as you and I've talked about, I think way back when, the, the, the percentage of who talks the most in a job interview is just bass backwards. All the data that we have, particularly at Gallup, was 60, 40, 60, the interviewer talks for 60% of the time and the interviewee talks for 40. And in fact, when we ask the interviewer how the interview went, there's a very strong positive correlation between the amount of time that the interviewer spends talking and how good the interviewer thinks mm -hmm. that the interviewee is, <laughs> even though they've been talking all the time. So the more you talk, the better you think the person is. It's a very self-reinforcing process by which you end up finishing an interview and you haven't really heard the person at all. You've made your decision in 30 seconds and then you just confirmed it with your with your chatter. So the first thing I've done is, is 90-10. Whenever you're considering anyone for any role, maybe it's just joining a new team. They, they currently live and work with you, but you're asking them to join a new team. Okay, 90-10. You ask you, the interviewer, the person who's trying to think about which team that person should be on. You're talking for 10% of the time, that's it. You maybe have six open-ended questions, that's it. The only question you keep repeating again and again and again and again is tell me more, tell me more. Tell me more. The other person talks for 90% of the time. And all you're doing is you're just pinning your ears back and, and believing what they tell you. So that's the first thing that I think if I could wave a magic wand and have every single team leader understand, it's that when somebody gets going down a vein of love and they're talking to you about it, believe them, even if it's not what you want to hear. Even if you've thought that they're such and such because they present as such and such, ask them questions shut up. And then what they're saying is what they're naturally saying. Believe what they're saying. So that's the first thing that I think we did really, really well. We listened really hard and we didn't then try to use, to use a Don Cliftonism. We didn't try to put a square peg in a round hole. We, we tried to go, oh, okay. Okay. So then you'll go into this role and then we'll have to find someone over here who's geeked by this because you're geeked by that. So, and that's, as you know, as a, a leader of many teams of teams of teams, that takes a little longer at the start, but boy, it works out so much better in the end because you've started out right with the right listening and the right combinations. So that's the first thing. And the second thing that's, oh, I put this in the book too, but frequency trumps quality when it comes to man management or people management. Frequency trumps quality. The world changes so quickly. Humans have a need for attention. There's a big old hole in the bucket and, the, and all the attention flows out so quickly. So as managers, we got to remember that, that if I'm going to help you take your loves or take your strengths or take your loves, turn them into strengths, turn them into content. If I'm going to do that, I got to do it in the context of work and work isn't goals. Goals are sort of independent of work. Work just comes and hits you every single week. And if I'm going to help you excel, I'm going to be talking to you every week and not really trying to give you some theoretical feedback about some sort of theoretical construct like executive presence or strategic thinking. No, no, no. I'm going to be talking to you about what are you going to try and do next week and how can I help you? 
I might do a bit of what you love last week. And then what do you want to do this week? What do you love last week? So I can continue to have your loves and your work, loves and work, just be an ongoing part of our conversation. If Again, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be put that, let's call it a check-in. We could call it a one-on-one. I don't care. Put that into the lexicon of every single team leader out there and people would feel seen. There's enough complexity in that person and their work and the relationship and the interaction between that person and that work. There's enough complexity in that. We don't need to come up with complicated leadership models. We, we don't need all the, all the complexity to live in the model. The complexity can live in the person and the work. It's, I mean, as you know, there's plenty of complexity yeah. in that person's loves and weaknesses and strength and their work. And so I think we did a really good job of going, the single most important ritual we're going to put into our company is frequent attention about near-term future work, person by person by person by person. And gosh, when you do that, you get tensile strength for the organization because it's moving and weaving around the work you're facing and the work you're facing this week isn't what you expected to face three weeks ago. So you've put in place something which is moving at the right speed of the way the real world is moving. And then, of course, what you've put in place is you've basically put in place systematized attention mm-hmm. on, on a human. So you and can't tell you- me that you talk to people right now, leaders who have the depth of frequency that you do. I can't tell you, at least from my end, how many times I've heard from people, well, yeah, we're lucky if we do it once every month, or it was scheduled today at 11 and it didn't happen. I mean, that's the norm, Marcus. And what you describe is certainly magic. Well, it it isn't the norm. We've overcomplicated what it is to lead. We super overcomplicated it. The, the data that we look at show very clearly that if you're checking in with your people once a week, actually, the, the, the date is once every 11 days. If you cut the data, once, if you get beyond 11 days, engagement goes through the floor and employee turnover goes through the ceiling. If you're frequently touching base with each one of your people more frequently than once every 11 days, your engagement scores in the next three months go up 77% and your turnover goes down 67%. So it's a magic bullet, actually. It's one of those very few magic bullets that we know meta-analytically across time has a huge causative effect on all the good outcomes that you want. It is so weird, though, that when you, if I were to say that, i it takes a while to push through the complexity of the forest to the simplicity beyond. But if you push through the complexity of 25 years of research on engagement and strengths and talents and resilience and so forth, when you push all the way through that forest, what's on the other side is the word attention. That's on the other side. So if you say that to a senior leader, here's what, what's weird is what you get back is my people don't need that at my level. Mm-hmm. Especially at the higher people, level, right? The higher level, right? My people don't need me to check in. And what you want to say is, have you watched the last dance? Go watch the last dance. If you want to see a domination of a dynasty in a super competitive sport, 
which is kind of what you're in, right? You're the CEO, right? Yeah. So you're a super competitive sport and you think you're pretty good. Look at total domination where everything is scored and, and the Chicago Bulls would be way up there. And when you have a look at that, look and see how frequently Phil Jackson is talking to Michael Jordan. You think Michael Jordan needs somebody to check up on him? No. Is Phil Jackson going, oh, he doesn't need me to check up on him. He's Michael Jordan. Have you had a Michael Jordan working for you? Probably you've never had anyone actually who's as good at their job as Michael Jordan was at his. And you know what Phil Jackson's doing? Checking in with, not checking up on, checking in with Michael Jordan all the bloody time because there's next game and then next game and then next game. And then what about if we tweak this and then we're going to do this and then John Paxton this and then St Steve Kerr that and then, oh, you know what, Scotty Pippen this and then we're going all of that is happening all the time, not because Michael is fine by himself because Michael is fine by himself. But if you're going to win as a team, you need frequent check-ins, particularly with your superstars, because the world moves really quickly. So if the first question, one of the questions that I put in the book that we should ask if we're going to think about, are you joining a love and work company, is how many direct reports the CEO have. If the number's north of 10, don't join. I mean, we should get that out there because if it's at the senior levels, people are like, nah, my people don't need that kind of frequent light touch attention mm. about them and their contribution. Now, nah, by that time, they don't need anybody. Don't join that company because that company has failed to understand at the highest levels what it takes to help a particular individual consistently give up their best and be nourished by it. They've forgotten that. And if you're going to join a company where at the top, they've forgotten that. Maybe they never knew that then it will trickle, it will stink from the head down, man. So it, what that really means for you is you're never going to have that kind of frequent ongoing attention toward you and your work because they don't really believe it. And, you know, as I said in the book, it's like, th that's why the two least engaged and least resilient professions of any, which, are is, crazy. And which yeah. is crazy, healthcare and, and education. There's no nurse supervisor to nurse one nurse supervisor to 60 nurses. Okay, that poor nurse supervisor can't pay frequent attention to that particular nurse, what she or he's going through, what they're challenged with, what their next week's going to look like, how can I help you? All the stuff that humans need. One to 60? Oh, and now we're wondering why our nurses are burning up. Well, it's the pandemic. No, it's not. Pre-pandemic, we had a massive crisis with burnout with nurses. Pre-pandemic. And a ton of it is because we've created org structures that make look good on a balance sheet and, and don't serve humans. I'm sorry. It's a, it's, there's, no, there's no teams in schools. Mm. <laughs> that, 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 that's another one. You throw the teacher all by themselves in a classroom and then, I mean, not to go on about it, but humans thrive from 50,000 years ago. Humans thrive on teams. That's why the first drawing we've ever found is of a team. <laughs> And if you build an organization that doesn't have teams and the frequent attention that comes with teams, if you don't build an organization around that, you'll get all the negative outcomes that you don't want. And that's what well, we see. You have framed 11 beautiful questions for all these candidates to ask these senior leaders, right? The, the top four or five certainly are the key ones and yeah. we'll share those with them. But Obviously, I can keep you here forever, but let me just kind of like fast forward to two quick things that I'm, I'm intrigued about. Your, your pillars have stayed the same, but you've evolved as a person. How in 2022 would you describe Marcus's unique ability? Like when your son and daughter ask you, dad, what is it that only 
our dad can do. What do you say? God, that's an annoyingly good question. I don't know what they would say, actually. I think in terms of, you know, one of the things that I put in the book was that we ought to help everyone write three love notes to themselves. And a love note is simply, I love it when, and then you say to the person, finish the sentence. And it has to be a verb. It's not, I love it when somebody's done something to you. It's, I love it when you're doing what? I love it when you're feeling what? I love it when you're seeing what? Just finish the sentence. And that's an ongoing thing. So I'm not suggesting that whatever you wrote 20 years ago or whatever I wrote 20 years ago would be exactly the same. But what a great discipline to get into so that over the course of your life, maybe two or three times a year, you're just writing down what you know about yourself. And I don't think I'll, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to share all of my three novels because that'll take too long. But I, I know that what I love the most is or when I'm at my best or what people always seem to turn to me for is when I can see and measure something real in the real world that reveals a concept that previously was hidden. And I love doing that. I've maybe always loved doing that, where I'm looking at the real world. People like Don Clifton have taught me the mechanics and the methodology of how to measure some of these things, some of these sentiments, some of these strengths or talents in the real world. But I think my love, my deep love is when I can use some of those pretty sophisticated psychometric technologies to figure out a core concept or understanding in the real world that was hidden. I love doing that which is why I thought I'd put in the book, you know, when I was nine years old, I'm standing around watching people watch. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you watch people watch other people do the high jump. And I was at a school where we were sports games and people were watching people do the high jump. And when other people watch somebody else do the high jump, everybody instinctively grows up on their tippy toes or everybody instinctively kicks their foot up. It's the weirdest thing. I was going on YouTube to try to find pictures of it, but you actually got, uh, you can't find it, but it happens always. And I was, I mean, uh, but I'm nine. I'm fascinated by that. Why are we all rising on our tiptoes when somebody else is trying to do the high jump? And of course, it's it's 25 years later when Giacomo Rizzolatti and his team discovers mirror neurons. I didn't know about mirror neurons. I didn't know that we're always trying to mirror the experiences or the actions of others. I didn't know any, any of that. But I did know I was fascinated by a thing and I paid attention to a thing and I was geeked out by a thing in the world that's observable. I love that. And, and I can't stop myself from doing that, even if it leads. I mean, it's led to the building of a business and that's so great. And it's led to the building of Strength Finder and that's so great. Right now where it's going to lead, I know it's going to lead somewhere which hits 14 to 21 year olds because to some extent, because of the experience of my kids and to some extent, because if you observe what's happening measurably to that cohort during those incredibly challenging transitions in their lives, you, you realize that we're leaving them bereft and then drugging them up and anesthetizing them. And so right underneath, I love it when I can have a chance to really see a piece of the real world and see the concept that underpins it. I mean, I love doing that. 
right underneath that is I love it when I can actually spend enough time to figure out what to go do about it. I love that. And I think both my kids would go, sometimes, dad, we wish you didn't do the second one because it tends to lead <laughs> to an awful lot of stuff that takes me away doing this and that and this and that and this and that. But I think those two things would be ones that probably anyone who knows me really well would go, yeah, we always turned, I may not be the best at it. I mean, there's some writers, like Malcolm Gladwell, for crying out loud, is a flipping genius as a writer. And there are other presenters, Brene Brown, Glennon Doyle, beautiful writers and, and speakers. And there are other scientists who are just, I mean, John, John Clifton, would, I'm way in his shade. So I'm not saying I'm the best at either one but of those. But you're pretty things. damn good at it. Well, I'm at my, I would say I'm at my best when, whatever my yeah. best is, <laughs> when I'm trying to observe something real in the world that I can see or I can measure and finding a concept that underpins it, I'm at my best when I'm doing that. And then I'm at my best when I've had the time to grind and grind and grind until I can figure out what we might be able to do about it. That's what people seem to turn to me for. Well, all you have to do is read the last two chapters of the book and people can predict what the next contribution is going to be for you. So lastly, I assume that your approach to developing your own network has evolved over the years. You even talk about networks in the book and so forth. How deliberate are you today about who you surround yourself with? I'm increasingly deliberate, I'm sure like you, because you do realize that time is short. Our time span on this earth is, no matter what time scale you use, it's not long. And you realize that you can't do very much all by yourself. You realize how limited you are if you think simply about you as a lone wolf, you as an island. And so pretty quickly over time, you realize that you're going to need lots of help. And along with that comes a realization that the thing, the two big things that you've got to get right about who you surround yourself with, the two really big things, you need to surround yourself with people who are as connected to whatever that better world is that you're seeing as you are. Because if you see a better world and you can't stop thinking about it, don't bother surrounding yourself with people that are super duper smart that aren't geeked out by the better world that you can see. They've got to be as excited as you are about the better world that you can see. Whether that means sharing your mission or sharing your values, I don't know whether that quite captures it. It's more like if I'm talking to you about what a better world would look like and the person's like, yeah, but you know what? I know C++ or I know, uh, you know Python or I know, and you're like, yeah, but do you see, do you, does that excite you? Is that what I, that picture I'm painting, does that excite you? I found that if you, if you go for the skill, but you don't get the excitement of the better world that for whatever reason animates me, I've always had problems. So now if you're not, as I've got a better world in my mind, in my head right now, today, right now, those last two chapters, as you said, it's like, we can do better. By the way, you'll notice that already some of the things that are in that kind of manifesto for change, unbelievably are already like already the two, two I of wanted them to ask you out. about that, but time got away, but <laughs> yeah, you know, people sorry. will read it for themselves. Yeah. It's, it's kind of great, but if you're not excited about what I'm excited about, right, that's fine. I'm not judging you, but, but don't come, don't come around me. Cause I, I want to be surrounded by people that are 
as excited as I am. And then, the, f- frankly, there's a there's a over time for me. There's been a oh, I don't know. There's a pragmatism that comes with going. You know what? Uh, as much as other people are super in- interesting and intriguing and as filigreed as I am, sometimes humans don't get along. There's a certain kind of human that that you bump into and it just doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. That's okay. When you find out that what you're doing is trying to navigate and manage a relationship where the source is all friction, for me anyway, it drains whatever the opposite of love Mm -hmm. is. That's it for Mm -hmm. me. I need to be surrounded with people who, for whatever reason, but yes, they're excited about the same thing in the future, but they have to like and enjoy or love the way that I love. And they, I have to love the way that they love. And when that happens, oh my gosh, so much creativity, so much movement and progress and energy. That's just the way my mind works. When I'm constantly dealing with, I mean, some people would say, no, 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 you need to have people that you conflict with and spar with and you need, and and for them, that's great. That's, but for me, I, I like to be around people who, where we don't, there's not a ton of, of, of friction and sparring and conflict. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I know that's as I deliberately seek to surround myself with people, I can, I can really quickly see whether or not we're going to have a, a smooth and fruitful kind of partnership. And if I bump into the fact that we're not, I've become much more sort of, I suppose, even-handed and going, you know what? I love you. You're a good egg but we shouldn't be working together. And so it's that whole thing of sometimes the best thing you can do in a relationship that doesn't quite work is get out of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little faster, I think now, in moving through times in my life where if you're going to try and create things that are great together, then you can't, for me, spend a ton of time trying to remediate, constantly remediate misunderstandings or broken relationships. Sometimes the most efficient thing is to move forward and get out of them. Well, I will forever be indebted to you and grateful for the contribution and the impact you've had on my life and anybody who's ever worked with me. And for whatever reason, I just get the sense that there's much bigger things and much bigger contributions that you are about to make in the world. And and I'm grateful that we had an opportunity to share this 45 minutes or hour. Well, I am too. Thank you very much. It's yeah, there's a lot more to do, isn't there? There's a lot more to do. And I'm, I'm super excited to have been able to be somewhat of an influence in your life. And I'm super excited to see whether we can go out and make some more change over the coming decades. 